All right. Uh, I have a question. We normally do this. If we could put it up right now. Uh, what is your favorite food and why? Okay. What is your favorite food and why? And I have to qualify a little bit. Some of us who live to eat, okay, it's going to be easy. We're going to share. But I know there's eat to live people here too. And uh, this could not be fun for them sometimes because they'll, they'll just kind of share something and then go on. So my follow-up question for the uh, live to eat and eat to live people is share a story of why this dish is so memorable and so valued to you, okay? So you can share whatever you like, but I'd like you to get into groups if you could and maybe share what is your favorite food and then uh, do the follow-up question as well. Can we do that right now? I'll give you some time to do that. All right, I know we could probably go forever talking about food, and it probably doesn't help when you've got a message you have to listen to and you're hungry and all that. But that's good. I'm glad that you were able to share. Um, for those of you that kind of shared food, I want to actually pursue this a little further. Uh, do you enjoy leftovers? Would you raise your hand? How many of you are leftover people? Okay. <laughs> that sounds wrong, doesn't it? Thank you. Thank you. How many of you here enjoy eating what you had for dinner again the next day, let's say, for lunch or dinner? Uh, I think leftovers are... Oh, yeah, you can raise your hand. That's right. Uh, I think uh, me being Korean, okay, uh, actually leftovers and enjoying it is actually a part of our DNA because Koreans are leftover crazy. As a matter of fact, I think the immigrant generation of Koreans... Uh, they are so leftover crazy that they'll go to somebody's house expecting to take stuff home with them, right, for leftover. When I come to your house, I expect you to give me the leftovers, okay? Uh, I remember this. After our wedding, uh, we had a Korean reception. Um, it was kind of traditional because we had those infamous Korean buffet lines, right? And I don't know if you've ever been to a Korean wedding. You know, I know with Vietnamese and Chinese, you have the seven-course meals and everything. But a lot of us, we enjoy, Koreans enjoy buffets, okay? So we had a Korean buffet line filled with every good dish that I loved. I mean, we had bulgogi, right? We had kalbichim. We had ojinga bokkim. You know, we had bokkum, excuse me. We had... Uh, we had seotigim. Uh, uh, if you're Korean, you know what I'm talking about, and your mouth is watering, right? But all of these amazing Korean dishes. And I remember at our wedding, uh, I was a pastor, so we actually had hundreds of people at our wedding, and half of the people we didn't even really know. And I remember they came to the wedding, and I remember seeing a bunch of people I didn't know crowding the buffet lines. Uh, because I was a pastor, of course, everybody's welcome. So the immigrant generation, the English-speaking generation, all of them were there. And they were piling up mountains of yummy food onto their plates. And I didn't even know who they were, right? And some of them, as they were eating, they packed styrofoam kind of things of things on the buffet line to take with them. Imagine like one or two you know, styrofoam containers that they were taking. And this shocked me because, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. I didn't grow up, you know, in a Korean situation. I'm like, why are they taking our food, you know? Why are they packing it up to go, you know, when everybody should be eating? And I remember this, that we didn't really even get to enjoy any of our food because people took it all, right? And so, you know, we were bowing and we were taking pictures and we were doing that. We had a little bit of food, but I was really looking forward to eating all my favorite things after and it was all gone. You know, people had taken it home. Koreans are leftover crazy, you know? In our early years of marriage, uh, we didn't have much money. And so many times, Joanne would recook leftovers, you know? And there was one dish that she made that was one of my favorites. And I look forward to eating it again and again. It was called kimchi jjigae, 
okay? And those of you that are Korean, you know what I'm talking about, right? I don't need to say any more. It's a hardcore Korean dish, and it's something that I loved. Now, it's not a gourmet dish. It's actually the exact opposite, right? It's something you throw together with the common stuff that you have in a Korean home. It's a poor man's meal. And by the way, I'm always amazed that when you look at the history of food and how many signature dishes of different countries come from a poor person's creativity and ingenuity when they throw things together. And so kimchi jjigae is the equivalent of feijoada, right, for the Brazilians, feijoada, or uh, Irish coddle, or even the American meatloaf, right? Every country has its poor man's meal that they put together, and it's always delicious, and it becomes the signature meal for that country. Well, kimchi jjigae is Korean, the Korean signature dish. It's kimchi stew. It's where you add all kinds of ingredients to kimchi that was left over in a pickling container, right? And it was too ripe, too sour to just eat it with rice. And so you would cook it, and you put vegetables in it, and you put tofu, and you put pork chops or pork pieces or pork belly, right? Or even spam. People, some people put, put spam in it, and it would just create this amazing dish. And Joanne actually makes the best kimchi jjigae in the world, hands down. It's my favorite thing. Kimchi jjigae was one dish that my wife would make an overabundance of, okay? Uh, I could uh, reheat that pot and literally eat it all week because she would make enough for that whole week. And the funny thing was that the more you reheated it, the better it would taste. Have you ever had a, me a meal like that? The more you reheated it, the better it would taste. Kimchi jjigae tasted even better at the end of the week than at the beginning of the week because all those ingredients and items marinated all week in that pot to make this amazing dish. Well, I'm saying all this because this morning, I know you're hungry right now. This morning, we're gonna have some spiritual kimchi jjigae. We're gonna partake in some biblical leftovers. You know, Pastor Wilson did a great job for the past two weeks teaching us on forgiveness and reconciliation in Matthew chapter 18. And I'll have to say, even in hearing these messages, it was convicting to me and very encouraging to my heart uh, to go through this stuff. What I want to do is I want to continue with these same themes by giving you an Old Testament character who lived this truth out in his own life. And so what I'm doing is I'm setting before you a leftover meal, and it's going to taste, or you're going to taste some of the same flavors because we're going to be looking at the same truths. Now you might say, well, Dave, why? Why are we doing this? I mean, we, we, we've been through this two times already. Why? Well, it's because forgiveness and reconciliation are some of the most difficult areas that we face as Christians. And if you're honest, and you know, let me be very vulnerable too, I have a hard time with this. And it's hard to accept the first time that you hear a message on it, isn't it, right? And it's hard to obey the second time you hear it. And sometimes, like leftovers, it's got to marinate before it gets better. It has to marinate again and again in your soul before you're ready to apply it to your life. And so my prayer this morning is that these leftovers will allow your soul to meditate on the importance of this truth and to digest, help you digest these principles in your life. And my prayer is that it would motivate you to practice them with the brothers and sisters even sitting here in this very room, your brothers and sisters in Christ. I believe that God's word will be as delicious and as nutritious and as satisfying this week as it has been 
the last two weeks. And so are you excited about this? I am excited. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Would you do that? 1 Samuel chapter 24. We want to look at the life of David this morning, and we want to study specifically how to reconcile with those brothers and sisters who have sinned against us. We call this peacemaking, okay? And so if you're taking notes, write this down, peacemaking. One of my favorite books um, that I've read is called Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. I don't know if any of you have ever read it. I recommend this wholeheartedly. It deals with the area of personal conflicts. And when brothers and sisters, when Christians get into these personal conflicts. And I, I just want to read a little bit uh, or an excerpt of what Ken, Ken Sandy says because it perfectly captures a peacemaker. Peacemakers are people who breathe God's grace. They draw continually on the goodness and power of Jesus Christ. And they bring his love, mercy, forgiveness, strength, and wisdom to the conflicts of daily life. God delights to breathe his grace through peacemakers and use them to dissipate anger, encourage repentance and reconciliation. And when Christians learn to be peacemakers, they can turn conflict into an opportunity to strengthen relationships and to make their lives a testimony to the love and the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Wouldn't you love to experience that in your life? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't that be an amazing testimony to others around you that you could be a peacemaker that could turn conflict into an opportunity to strengthen even the very relationships that we have as Christians? I want us to learn the principles of how to be peacemakers, and we're going to look at the life of David this morning. So 1 Samuel chapter 24, let's look in verse 1. It says, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told that David is in the desert of En Gedi. Verse 2, so Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men. Now, why? And that begs the question, right? Why was Saul doing this? Well, Saul is chasing David to put him to death. He wants to kill David as soon as he can find him, right? And so what he does is he handpicks 3,000 of his best men to create an army to hunt David down and to exterminate him. For four years, David has been a fugitive. He's been running and hiding from King Saul and the Israeli army all over Israel. Now you might ask, well, why? Because Saul is jealous of David's success and fame. He is envious that God's hand is on him. I don't have time to go through this, but in chapter 18, uh, verses 6 through 9, we see that even early on, when Saul was supporting David, and Saul and David were coming back from battle, David had, had not only had victory in his youth over a Philistine giant, but he was racking up victory after victory as one of Israel's most beloved captains. And so here, as he comes back home from these victories with Saul, the women come out in a victory procession, and they begin to sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And the Bible says when that or those words struck the ear of Saul, Saul began to look at David a different way. The Bible says that he burned with anger toward David, that this jealousy and envy began to fester. Not only that, but that it churned and turned in Saul all this fear and anxiety and insecurity to a point that now Saul didn't look at David the same anymore. And Saul began to be very suspicious of David and very quickly 
Saul began to look for ways to get David out of the way. But did David do anything wrong to Saul? Well, no. As a matter of fact, when we look in Scripture, David had been a model servant to the king. He was loyal. He was faithful. He was obedient to the king in every way. Yet, here's my point. Saul is sinning against him. And he's sinning against him in the extreme. You know, it was heartbreaking to hear Wilson's bullying experience. And I would never have thought, I have to be honest, I would never have thought Wilson uh, ever went through any bullying because he's so cool and everything. And, you know, he just seems so, you know, like put together. I didn't think that, you know, he would have any trouble with people. But just to hear the story of Michael really made me sad, you know, and really made me think, oh, wow, you know, Wilson was unpopular and he was a nerd and he was weird, you know. You know, I, I feel better about that, to be honest with you, you know. And, and, and Michael, you know, really did bully him. But, you know, when you think about it, right, even in all the bullying, Michael wasn't trying to take his life, right? Michael wasn't sitting in a playground with a hunting knife ready to cut off Wilson's head, all right? Wilson, and <laughs> that's dark, but he wasn't doing that. And when you look at the times, because all of us have maybe been through bullying before, some more than others, none of us have been in a situation where that person was to the extreme trying to murder you. But that was, that was what was happening to David. And I want you to see in verse 3, Saul came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself, and David and his men were far back in the cave. Imagine this. Can you picture the scene? Here David finds himself in the same cave with Saul. This is the same guy who's been trying to hunt him down. He has caused more pain and sorrow and anxiety and heartache than anyone else in David's life. And he's here. And he's here alone in the cave, right? What would you have done if that were you? This seems like poetic justice because in verse 4, this is what we're thinking and what the men say. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish, right? Amen. Here, David had the opportunity to take care of all of his problems with one stroke of his sword. David could have eliminated all his grief and pain and trouble, but here, David chose not to. David chose not to take revenge on Saul. Rather, he chose by faith to trust God that God would eventually put him on the throne. He trusted in God's timetable. However, it goes far beyond this. Because David not only leaves this matter in God's hands, David desires what most of us wouldn't even dream of in this situation. He desired reconciliation with the person who sinned against him. And may I remind you, sinned against him in the extreme. I want us to look this morning at five principles on peacemaking. Five steps in the peace process. And I believe this is how we reconcile with the one who sins against us. Let's look in verse 5. It says, Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's, uh, David's, uh, uh, was conscience-stricken for having done this. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay a hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went uh, his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. So the first step in reconciling with the person who sinned against you 
is number one, a sincere desire to reconcile. Can I give you that? A sincere desire to reconcile. If you don't sincerely desire to reconcile with the individual, you'll never do it. I know uh, many times in counseling people who've shared with me sins that have been done against them, uh, we come to a point where they said, well, I know I need to reconcile with so-and-so. I know that I need to get this right with this particular person. I know I need to share these things. But, you know, I'll ask them later on, even months later, you know, I'll ask them, you know, how, how's it going with that? And many times what they'll say is, I, I just didn't do it. Because of fear of confrontation or because of bitterness and resentment that they've held on to or because it's just too much work emotionally, they still haven't done it. You see, there will never be reconciliation between you and the offending person until it becomes a preeminent priority in your life. Matthew 5, chapter uh, 5, verse 23 says, says it this way. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come offer your gift. Settle matters quickly. Here's the idea that Jesus is giving of priority, preeminent priority. You see, one of the greatest traits of David is that the more we study his life, the more we see his desire for reconciliation. David is anguished when he's not right with God, first of all, and then when he's not right with others. See, all throughout his life, we see relationships where people are opposing him. And David seems so burdened with reconciling with those same people who are opposing him. Some of the hardest times David goes through is with Saul or with Abner or with Absalom because there are times when there's no reconciliation and his heart yearns to be reconciled. You know, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. You see, God's children, uh, our brothers and sisters, should be marked with this urgency and this priority to reconcile when there is no reconciliation. The Bible tells us, as peacemakers, we need to take the initiative to reconcile. The sincere desire here translates into initiation. Matthew 5:18. If your brother or sister sins, go and show their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you've won your brother. You see, the truth is, if there's one thing that I've learned, people are going to offend us in this church, right? Within our Christian community. Brothers and sisters will sin against us. And we may desire to be reconciled with them. But if we say to ourselves, well, I won't initiate. I mean, they sinned against me. Or why should I go to them? They need to come to me and apologize. When we have that kind of mentality, no reconciliation happens. That's why Jesus shares the truth that when they sin against you, you go. It's your responsibility, right? And when I'm saying this, I know how strong it is even in my life because it's something that I have a difficult time with. It's one of the, the ones I have the most difficult time with. Verse 8, then David, but what does David do? Verse 8, then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. I want you to see here that David initiates the peacemaking. And I want you to recognize two things that David did that shows that he sincerely wanted reconciliation. Number one, notice where he confronted Saul. 
David does not confront Saul in the cave. Okay? Imagine the hypothetical situation. Saul is in the cave, and we all know what he's doing. He's going to the bathroom. He's peeing in the cave, right? And so here he is all alone because he wants privacy. And imagine all of a sudden David surrounds him with his men, and he says, Saul, my lord the king, let's reconcile, right? You'd have to admit that that would be a smart and advantageous situation for David to be with his men around Saul, but David knows that that wouldn't be real reconciliation. Saul would have been intimidated in that cave and would have said anything that David wanted him to say. So threats, intimidation was not his purpose. David's desire, remember, is true reconciliation. So what does he do? He waits until Saul is out of the cave with his 3,000 warriors in safety. You see, there's a truth to this. If you really want reconciliation, then your goal is not to intimidate. As a matter of fact, if reconciliation is your goal, you want that person to feel as safe as possible. There needs to be a safety in order for their defenses not to go up. You see, many times when we confront others, our goal is to prove that we are right and they are wrong, that we have a right to be offended. And so what we do is we, what, we bully, we bulldoze, we overpower, we intimidate, and we try to control. But when we do that, the person is so defensive that reconciliation is never achieved. So we have to understand that there has to be safety. I want you to notice where he confronts Saul. And I want you to notice how he confronts Saul. Let's look in verse 9. And David said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? Here he diffuses the situation by giving Saul the benefit of the doubt. He comes into this confrontation process not full of suspicion. Rather, he's declaring that maybe the reason Saul is doing this is because of what he has heard from other people, that he has gotten a bad report from others. Now, this is not just some face-saving technique. I believe there's great wisdom here. David is creating a safe place where they can dialogue. He is accommodating in the process by giving Saul the benefit of the doubt. This is so wise. David is paving a road for peacemaking to occur genuinely and naturally. Let me ask you, when we are confronting those that have sinned against us, are we wise in creating a safe place? Where we confront, how we confront. It's important if we have a sincere desire to reconcile with others. Amen? Let's look at the second point. Allow actions to prove goodwill. Allow actions to prove goodwill. Let's look in verse 10. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, see my father. Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. You see, there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrong doing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. You see, when Saul comes out of the cave, David follows him out, and he holds up that piece of Saul's robe that he had cut off. And I'm sure that once Saul realized what was happening, he looked down at his robe to see if that was really a piece of his robe. So when David was raising that piece of fabric, he w what was he saying? What was he showing? He was saying, this could have been your head, if I were to seek revenge, what was he doing? He was showing the proof of love and loyalty and goodwill to Saul. When you reconcile with someone, it is important that your actions show goodwill. 
In the New Testament, Romans 12, 18 through 20 says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, what is that? What does that mean, you know? You'd think that if you put burning coals on the head, that's the definition of revenge, right? But we know, right, from the wisdom literature, he's speaking a proverb. The idea of figuratively putting coals on his head is when we show goodwill to a person who has sinned against us, it awakens guilt. It uh, causes emotional discomfort in the way that that person has treated you. It stirs within that person a sense of remorse. You see, many times it takes that to pave the way for reconciliation, where that person give, is given the opportunity to repent. I love that we are, not to over, we are not to show evil, but we are to overcome evil with good. The third point, if you're taking notes, is always give a gentle answer. Proverbs 15 and 1, uh, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. When we confront someone who sinned against us, we must not come heated or ready to fight. And that's a lot of times how we come. We come very raw with insults and sarcasm and profanity, right? But when we come, we need to come calm and open-minded and gentle in our dialogue. I want you to see what this gentle answer looks like in the life of David. Look in verse 11. David says this, see my father. See, David calls Saul his father. It is uh, the Hebrew word for a loving, respectful uh, a word for father, dad. See, David shows familial affection to Saul. Saul was David's father-in-law, right? He hasn't been acting like a good father-in-law, but here David says, hey, dad. And the reason why David, and here's, here's an important point. The reason why David is gentle towards Saul is that he never sees Saul as an enemy. And I think this is really amazing. He never sees him as an enemy. He always sees him as family. And this is important. When we are sinned against, we tend to demonize the person who has offended us. The person is our enemy. But if that person has been born again, if that person is a regenerate person, that's family. They're a brother and sister in Christ. There's somebody that, you know, that we should see as a part of our family. And see, when we look at it that way, it changes our perspective, doesn't it? I want you to notice, you don't have to turn there, but listen, when Saul does finally die, and he dies at the hands of the Philistines, right? Well, actually, he commits suicide because of the battle that he had lost, and they knew that the Philistines were, were closing in on him. He dies, but later on in 2 Samuel, I want you to look at David's response to the news of Saul's death. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, I'll just read this, okay? Just listen. Then David and all the men with him took a hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. Verse 17. David took up his lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Eshkelon, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain nor fields that yield offerings of grain, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. 
from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The, soul, the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan in life were loved and gracious. And in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned, uh, who adorned your garments with the ornaments of gold. David is genuinely mourning Saul's death. He sees him as dad and mourns him with that kind of perspective. See, reconciliation is the reality uh, is a reality when you realize that the person who offended you is not your enemy, but in fact your family. How can I be once again uh, connected with my family? How is it once again that we can have a relationship like we did before? So often our words are harsh and accusatory and inflammatory, but we must learn to use the proper words, the proper way, with the proper perspective. Let's look at the fourth one, if we could. Always declare God's truth. This is a very important part of conflict and seeking reconciliation. Let's look in verse 11. And this is uh, towards the end, 11b, let's say. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you're hunting me down to take my life. You see, when you've been wronged, it is necessary for you to declare the truth of that sin. You are responsible to confront the person who sinned against you with the truth. Now, why is that important? And again, being Asian, right, uh, being non-confrontational is so much easier. Why is it that you have to confront with this? I remember um, a while back, uh, there was a well-known pastor, if I said his name, you guys would know him, who I really believe sinned against me. And he was somebody that I trusted and somebody that really hurt me. And I remember for years, not, not for years, yeah, for about a year, okay, I hated him. I literally hated this man. And I remember the Lord working with me and, you know, and, and, and speaking to my heart. And I remember I went to go see him. It, it had been a year since, um, since I had been to his church. And so I remember going over there, listening to the message, and afterwards meeting him in his office. And I remember uh, meeting him, saying to him, listen, I've hated you for this time, and I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? And he was very gracious to forgive me. But I'll never forget what he did because it kind of surprised me. He said, okay, so what did I do to, to, to hurt you? What did I do to offend you? And he wasn't trying to say, what did I do? You know, sarcasm, but he sincerely wanted to know. And I didn't want to tell him, okay, because I didn't want to open a whole can of worms and do all that. So I said, pastor, you know, I, I hated you, and that's enough for me to seek your forgiveness. And I remember he said, no, I want to know what I did. I want to know my sin. And it kind of shocked me. And I remember why. I said, well, why do you want to know that? And he said, because God wants to speak to me through you. That's what he told me. And I was able to share with him. But he said, God wants to speak to me through you. Why is, are you responsible to confront the person with the truth? It's because God is teaching that person through you. It's because that person needs the opportunity to repent. And so truth is so important. That's why we need to invite God into the process of confrontation. I want you to see that here David allows the Lord to be the mediator. You know, many times we forget to do this, right? When we meet with somebody and we have this confrontation, a lot of times we use, you know, uh, it's just between me and him, and so we use 
worldly ways. But here we need to understand that the Lord is in the middle of this. He's the Father, right, in the middle of this. Uh, Verse 12, let's look at what David does. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Verse 15, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When we go into this process, do we go into it agreeing, both parties, that God is in the midst of us? That God is our mediator? Pastor Wilson did a great job saying, when two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst of that, right? When brothers and sisters are there, God is there. Are we acknowledging that? David's intention is not revenge, but a restoration of a relationship. So he invites God into that process with Saul. He declares the truth. He invites God into that process. And then he helps him to realize his sin. I want you to see this. David continues to allow the truth to reveal sin. Let's look in verse 14. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? What's David saying? Dad, why are you coming after me? I'm a nobody. I'm a dead dog. I'm a flea. What's he saying? It's foolish for the king of Israel to be hunting a nobody like me. Right? I'm not the thing that you should be consumed with. And Saul is consumed, isn't he? You have more important matters. You have more important kingly things. You have a pressing God-given responsibility as the king. Why are you obsessed with destroying me? And what David is doing is he's holding up a mirror to Saul's face so that he can see his sin. And see, these are all important in the process to declare the truth of God. And I want you to notice how Saul responds to this truth. Verse 16, and when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good that you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. I want you to see that David was able to overcome evil with good. And this is so beautiful. The fifth point that I want you to see is always keep on forgiving, right? Always keep on forgiving. Uh, Saul realizes his son. Let's continue in verse 19 uh, where he admits, When a man finds his enemy, does he uh, let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you for the way that you treated me today, right? He's opening himself up. He knows what he's done. Verse 20, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Verse 22, so David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Wow, isn't that amazing? David and Saul are now finally reconciled. Saul has repented. He's wept. He's really sorry for what he's done. David took an oath, right? All is rightly restored. It's like endgame. Everything's done, right? Right? In chapter 26, you don't have to turn there, but just remember, chapter 26, 1 and 2, let me just read it, okay? The Ziphites went to Saul at Geba and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah? which faces Jessamon. So Saul went to the desert of Ziph with 3,000 of his chosen men of Israel to search for David. What the? Right? Deja vu all over again. Different desert, same number of men, same purpose. 
we see the exact same thing. After all the repentance, after all the tears, after all the restoration, he does the same thing. Unbelievable. And when you read chapter 26, David has to go through the exact same steps for reconciliation all over again. You're like, oh, I'm so depressed. Oh my gosh. But here's my point. Sometimes we go to reconcile with somebody. We forgive them. They admit uh, of the sin. Uh, they, they, they repent of it. And everything is restored, right? And then what happens? They commit the same thing again. What do we do? What does Jesus say for us to do? And here's where I close. Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, not seven times, but 70 times seven. That you keep on continually forgiving as many times as your brother and sister needs forgiveness. Now, this is an extreme story, isn't it? Right? Nobody sinned against you where they're trying to take your life. So you're thinking, well, what's the point of all of this? If David went through all this and Saul's coming at him again, what is this? You know, why should I do this? But let me share with you that the principle that we find here of reconciliation is not only to see reconciliation in that person, but the principle is also to sanctify you. Amen? And just like David, God is making you into a person after his own heart. And so God puts you through situations where you have to exercise these things. God puts you in situations where you have to live out these truths in your life. And when you do those things, just like we talked about uh, with Ken Sandy's book, we show God's grace to everyone around us. We become the testimony to the love and power of the gospel. My friend, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult, especially when people have offended us. And believe me, I'm one of those people that have a hard time with this. But when we take that step of faith and when we obey, God is glorified and we grow as a result. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had. Lord, we ask that you would be with us in this very difficult principle, Lord, that you call us to live out this gospel life of forgiveness. And Lord, we ask that there, if there's any people in this room, if there's any sin that uh, causes us resentment and bitterness, Lord, if there's any un reconciled situations. We pray that this would be, once again, a time where we could get it right. Lord, that this would be a leftover meal that we could allow to really uh, strengthen us and really do a work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.